Hello, and welcome to the City of Truth. Episode 12, Messianic Prophecies. Last week, we focused on the book of Daniel, primarily because it was a nice, clean way to consider the claims of the Old Testament in regard to prophecy. Now we're going to address another set of prophecies. We haven't yet considered any sort of real distinction between Judaism and Christianity, besides perhaps Daniel's prophecy of a Messiah. Many prophecies in the Old Testament could confirm the divine origin of those books while saying nothing one way or another about Christianity. Christianity makes the claim that Judaism was revealed by God, but that that system was superseded by the coming of the predicted Messiah. Christianity says that the Messiah was Jesus of Nazareth, and furthermore claims that he was the very incarnation of God himself. One of the proofs offered for this is that the Old Testament predicted certain things about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. Today we'll consider a few of those messianic prophecies. This functions both as a confirmation of the messianic claims of Jesus, as well as continued proof of the prophetic power of the Bible. This list is not exhaustive, and it does not refer to actions that were directly within Jesus' control. For example, there is a prophecy which states that the Messiah will speak in parables, but this is easily done if one chooses to do so, so holds no real relevance here. Others are clearly miraculous, and not likely to be believed by a skeptic based on simple testimony. For example, it was predicted that Christ would be born of a virgin, but a non-believer wouldn't accept the Bible's claim to that fact. These, too, have been omitted. Some of these might seem a bit obscure at first. I'll try my best to explain them. We'll look at the passage, then cover the basic meaning, then look at the historical facts about Jesus. At the end, that will give us a list of the requirements the Old Testament puts on the Messiah. Passage 1, Genesis 49.10 Quote, the scepter shall not be taken away from Judah, nor a ruler from his thigh, till he comes that is to be sent, and he shall be the expectation of nations. Unquote. So what does that mean? The area of Judea, or the kingdom of Judea, will continue to be ruled by Judeans, or Judaic kings, until the Messiah comes, who is here called the expectation of nations. The Messiah is referred to as this because he was to bring the Gentiles into the covenant, so nations other than the Jews would be accepted into God's people. So what are the historical facts? Besides temporary periods of foreign rule, when the Jews were pretty much retaining their own kings anyway, the nation of Judea existed continually until circa 6 AD, when it came under Roman rule. Thereafter, it ceased permanently to be an independent nation. The Jews themselves were scattered in the diaspora in 70 AD, after Jerusalem was destroyed, and in subsequent diasporas, especially that under Emperor Hadrian. And the state of Israel did not return until 1948. A nation or kingdom called Judea has not existed since the first century AD. Passage 2, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Quote, For a child is born to us, and a son is given to us, and the government is upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, God the Mighty, the Father of the world to come, the Prince of Peace. His empire shall be multiplied, and there shall be no end of peace. He shall sit upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom, to establish it and strengthen it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth and forever. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Unquote. Okay, so the Messiah will create a kingdom that is everlasting and grows across the entire earth. He will be a descendant of King David. And he will be a man, a child born to us, who is also God. That is, will be called God the Mighty. So what are the historical facts? Well, Christ was a descendant of King David in both the maternal and paternal lineage. He established what is widely referred to as the Kingdom of Heaven, the Church, which has lasted to this day almost 2,000 years, and has spread across the entire globe. He is widely regarded as God incarnate and often called the Prince of Peace, even thousands of years after he lived. Passage 3, Micaiah 5, 2 Quote, and thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, art a little one among the thousands of Judah. Out of thee shall come forth a ruler unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel. And his going forth is from the beginning, from the days of eternity. Unquote. So this means that Bethlehem is one of a thousand small, unimportant towns, but it is blessed because a special ruler will come from it. This ruler, however, is not ordinary, but the one that is destined to come from the beginning of time and has existed eternally, namely the Messiah. And as everyone knows, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and is regarded as both the Messiah and God. Passage number 4, Isaiah 53, 5-10 But he was wounded for our iniquities, he was bruised for our sins. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his bruises we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, Every one hath turned aside into his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was offered because it was his own will, and he opened not his mouth. He shall be led as a sheep to the slaughter, and shall be dumb as a lamb before his shearer, and he shall not open his mouth. He was taken away from distress and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? Because he is cut out of the land of the living, for the wickedness of my people I have struck him. And he shall give the ungodly for his burial, and the rich for his death, because he hath done no iniquity, neither was there deceit in his mouth. And the Lord was pleased to bruise him in infirmity. If he shall lay down his life for sin, he shall see a long-lived seed, and the will of the Lord shall be prosperous in his hand. Unquote. So there's a lot in this one. The Messiah will suffer and die for the sake of all mankind, bearing their sins and thereby redeeming them. He will suffer and die by his own choice, and when given the opportunity, he will not defend himself, but remain silent. He will have done no sin, nor spoken any lie. But by his death he will give birth to something that lasts for a long time. So what are the historical facts? Well, Jesus suffered and died by crucifixion. At his trial, they tried to bring evidence against him for doing some sort of sin, so they could kill him. But none was able to be brought forth. Nevertheless, he didn't speak in his own defense. When he could have easily been cleared of the charges, he then told them explicitly that he was the Messiah, thereby guaranteeing his execution. Beforehand, he knew that they would execute him, but went to Jerusalem anyways. It is clear then that he explicitly chose to die by his own will. Moreover, out of his death was born Christianity, which has lasted for 2,000 years. Passages 6 and 7 Isaiah 8.14 and Psalms 117.22 Quote, and he shall be a sanctification to you, but for a stone or stumbling, and for a rock of offense to the two houses of Israel, for a snare and a ruin to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Unquote. Second quote. 
The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Unquote. So what do these quotes mean? The Messiah will come to sanctify his people, but instead the Jews will be scandalized by his coming, and his coming will rather herald their destruction on account of their unbelief. But the Messiah that they rejected will become the cornerstone for others, the new foundation. And these are the historical facts. Jesus came preaching sanctification to the Jews first, and then the Gentiles, according to his own words. The Jews, however, eventually rejected him, and they had him put to death. Thereafter, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the Jews were killed and scattered. Christianity, however, was founded upon Christ's death, and flourished afterwards, despite great persecutions. Here's the last one, and it's a big one. Passage 8, Psalm 21. Multiple excerpts. Quote, O God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They cried to thee, and they were saved. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, the reproach of men, and the outcast of the people. All they that saw me have laughed me to scorn. They have spoken with the lips, and wagged the head. He hoped in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him save him, seeing that he delighteth in him. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are scattered. My heart is become like wax, melting in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue hath cleaved to my jaws, and thou hast brought me down into the dust of death. For many dogs have encompassed me, the counsel of the malignant hath besieged me, they have pierced my hands and feet, they have numbered all my bones, and they have looked and stared upon me. They parted my garments amongst them, and upon my vesture they cast lots. All the ends of the earth shall remember, and shall be converted to the Lord and all the kindreds of the Gentiles shall adore in his sight. Unquote. Here's one of the really big ones. This remarkable passage describes in detail certain sufferings of the Messiah. First, it relates the line above, spoken by the Messiah on the cross. O God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Secondly, that the Messiah will be reproached by the people. Third, that they will say he trusted in the Lord, let him save him. Fourth, that the Messiah will be poured out like water. Fifth, that his bones will be pulled apart. Sixth, that he will become totally parched and thirsty. Seventh, that he will be surrounded by people who hate him. Eight, that his hands and feet will be pierced. Nine, that his bones will not be broken. Tenth, that they will part his garments among them, but for his main robe they will instead gamble on it. Eleventh, that the whole world will learn of him, and people everywhere will be converted, especially Gentiles. It's filled with many specific details. And here are the historical facts about the death of Jesus. Every single one of these conditions apply to what happened to Jesus, and all but the first, which he said himself, were entirely outside of his control, if he were an ordinary man. So first, he did quote this passage on the cross, and in Hebrew, showing that he was quoting scripture. The language at the time was Aramaic or Greek. Second, he was condemned to death after the priests go to the people onward, and they all declared that they wanted him put to death, and they had formed a secret council, the Council of the Malignant, to plot his destruction. Third, when he quoted the scripture above, they thought he was calling out to the prophet Elias, or Elijah, and mocked him. Fourth, when he was stabbed in the heart with the spear, blood and water poured out of his side. Fifth, when crucified, one's bones are pulled out of their sockets, and Christ was crucified. Sixth, Christ said, I thirst on the cross, and was given a sponge from which to drink. Seventh, he was mocked, beaten, laughed at, and tortured by people, both while he carried the cross and when he was crucified. Eighth, crucifixion pierces one's hands and feet. 
Ninth is a remarkable example. No one was allowed to be still hanging on the Sabbath, so they would take a hammer and break the legs of the crucified, which would hasten their deaths. The two people who were crucified beside him had this done to them, but Christ had already died by the time they came by, so they didn't break his bones. The tenth example is also impressive. When they stripped his clothes off, the Roman soldiers simply cut them up and shared the cloth. However, his robe was of good quality, so they didn't want it cut up. Instead, they gambled to see who would get it. Finally, 11th, Christianity spread across the entire world, and there have been Christians in every nation on earth. This alone is an incredible number of conditions to fulfill, and this psalm, without a doubt, predates Christ. So all of this together gives us a non-exhaustive list of conditions necessary to fulfill the role of the Jewish Messiah. Let's go through them quickly. 1. The Messiah must have been born by or around 6 AD. 2. The Messiah must be regarded as both God and man, and known by certain titles. 3. That he must be a descendant of King David. 4. That he created an institution that existed from his coming to the present day, and will last forever. 5. That the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and be regarded as the eternal king. 6. I'll just add this one in right here. We have that condition from Daniel 9, which said that the Messiah had to come between 55 BC and 39 AD. 7. The Messiah must suffer and die for the sins of men, thereby redeeming them. 8. The Messiah will choose to suffer and die for this purpose, and will not speak in his own defense. 9. The Messiah's death will give birth to a long-lived movement. 10. The Messiah will come to sanctify the Jews, but they will reject him, which will lead to their ruin. 11. The Messiah, after being rejected by the Jews, will then become the cornerstone of a new faith. And lastly, number 12. The Messiah will fulfill ten specific conditions from the psalm upon his death. He would be condemned by popular opinion, mocked that God should come save him, pour out water from his body, have his bones dislocated, become parched, be surrounded by enemies at his death, die by crucifixion, not have his bones broken, have his captors gamble for his robe, and would create a religion that would reach every nation on earth. Simply meeting three of these conditions, the easiest among them, namely being born around 6 AD, being a descendant of King David, and being born in Bethlehem, narrows the list down to almost no one. Of such people that fulfill these conditions, none is known of or remembered today other than Jesus of Nazareth, who is also, incidentally, regarded by billions as the Messiah. The odds that this is coincidental are astronomical. Moreover, with all of the conditions taken as a whole, only one person in history ever has or ever will fulfill them all, the very same Jesus of Nazareth. Even disregarding the specific nature of the predictions as concerning the Messiah, the fact that this many details of any individual's life were predicted beforehand is an impossible, miraculous feat. Predicting even one thing alone, particularly that an individual not even born yet will create the largest religion in history, which will last for the rest of humankind's existence, is a one in a billion shot. Only about ten people in history can lay claim to creating a worldwide religion by the most forgiving standards. And only one religion in history has had strong, direct influence on every country in the world at some point in its history. Every nation has had a sizable Christian population at some point, including India, China, and many other countries which now have very small present Christian populations. So the prediction that an individual's faith will spread to every country has once again only applied to one person in history, Jesus. I must emphasize again that these predictions were all made centuries beforehand in reference to one particular individual who was not yet born, and they all came to pass. 
we know for a fact that they were made prior to Christ's birth by centuries, and they were actually fulfilled. Elements that are within Christ's control, like that he spoke in parables, are not even considered. Elements that have a miraculous character, that he was born of a virgin and was raised from the dead, are not even considered. In fact, we've only scratched the surface of messianic prophecies. There's over a hundred in the Old Testament, and every single one of them has been fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. Quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis We only have one thing left to consider about religious claims. That's the reliability of the New Testament and the matter of its miraculous claims. We will consider that in the next episode.